at this point, when Hebrews is being written, at this point in history, Jesus has already come to earth, he's been crucified, he's risen from the dead, and he's ascended to the Father. The time frame that Hebrews is being written is somewhere in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, but the real 60s, 65 to 68 A.D., The temple was still present in Jerusalem. Sacrifices were being made daily. The feasts were being observed as they are written and prescribed in the Old Testament. Judaism seems to be thriving. The Romans are still in control of Jerusalem. It won't be until 70 AD that they'll actually come and destroy Jerusalem. And however, within Judaism, within that culture, there were some Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. They had embraced Christianity. But they're finding it difficult to follow Christ. Why? because of their roots in Judaism. Many of them were confused or even considering giving up, going back to their old way of life. Why would they do something like that? Because some of these believers were being challenged by their family and their friends. They had been, uh, it had been about 30 years since Christ had ascended to the Father. Their Hebrew friends and family had begun really persecuting them, making fun of them. And as a result, they were being removed from their homes. They were losing their businesses. Their property was being confiscated. And many of them have actually been excommunicated from their local synagogue and even from the temple. By this time, in the late mid to later 60s, many of the Christians are second generation, meaning their, their parents may have been Christian, come to faith in Christ. Now the children are being brought up, and there always is, a, during the second generation, a little bit of, did my parents have it right? So there's this, there's this controversy taking place in many of their minds. In many cases, their faith in Christ had literally cost them everything. And the author of the book of Hebrews wants to encourage and he wants to strengthen whatever little bit of tender faith that they might have left. His message is simple. He's going to tell them over and over again in many different ways, Jesus is better. Jesus is is better than Judaism. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses and Joshua. He's better than the Jewish priesthood that has been established. He works in a better temple. He makes better promises. He established a better covenant. And he offered in himself a better sacrifice once for all men. God has replaced the fixtures of Judaism literally with faith in Jesus Christ. In this letter, as we study it together, you're going to find what I'll call the strong meat of God's word. It's deep. You're going to have to chew on some things. It's going to demand some spiritual uh, molars, some spiritual, some adult teeth to chew some of the things up we're going to cover. But like a good steak, it will be enjoyable and satisfying if you'll partake of it. The book of Hebrews will exalt the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Over the years, I must tell you, there's been a great debate, a great question that's arisen. It's always asked, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who's the author of the book of Hebrews? Because the book doesn't mention an author. And even today, the human author remains completely unknown. We really don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I would say the most common author is ascribed to Paul. Most people believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But some of the Greek scholars and the Hebrew scholars, they suggest that the writing doesn't really match Paul's style. And many of the scholars have suggested perhaps it was Apollos, perhaps it was Barnabas. Some even suggest Priscilla and Aquila. So the number of people that have been suggested have been many. For me personally, I'm comfortable believing that God wrote the book of Hebrews. God wrote the letter. If you ask my kids who wrote the book of Hebrews, they'll say God. We used to have a game that we played when they were kids. I'd say, who wrote the book of John? Who wrote the book of Matthew? Who wrote the book of Luke? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And they would say God. 
You know, because I've come to the conclusion that although we don't know the human author, I am confident that the human author was inspired by the Holy Spirit and for this time simply remains unknown. And when we get to heaven, we can find out for sure. As we study the book of Hebrews, I have to kind of prepare you or warn you, I don't want to get lost in some of the small, minute doctrinal details. It's not about defending or proving some minor pet doctrine that you or I may have developed along the way. We're going to do our best, like we do in every book, to keep a historical perspective. In other words, the time that was set in history. We're going to focus on the audience that it was written to, those Hebrews that I just described to you. We're going to, in other words, like we always do, we're going to keep it in context. We don't want to go off on too many tangents. We want to see things in the context that it was written by the author. Simply put, the book of Hebrews is going to teach you and I, no matter how many times you've studied it or even taught it, a lot more about Jesus. Have you ever found your faith wavering? Is it really real? Could he really, is, there, do I, is, it really, is salvation really by faith alone? Many of these questions will be clearly answered as we study through the book of Hebrews. It will build your faith and you will realize who it is that you're putting your faith in. So our purpose in studying this book is simply put, to get to know Christ more. To get to know Jesus more. And I know you will be blessed whether you're a seasoned saint or been walking with the Lord for years, or maybe you've even just come to Christ, I know you're going to be blessed as we study through this book because it will teach you more about Jesus Christ. Let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 1, as I'll read the first four verses, just follow along with me, then we'll talk about them. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. The very first word in the book is God. There is no attempt to prove the existence of God. The writer of Hebrews was convinced that God existed. And he was certain that God had spoke to mankind throughout history. Well, how did he speak to mankind? How has he spoken to mankind? God has always been speaking to mankind. The author there tells us that, tells us that God has spoken in various ways, in many different ways. In times past, God spoke to mankind, that's you and I, by the prophets. But notice today, he says. He refers to it as in the last days. In the last days. I, I think that if they were in the last days back then, 2,000 years later, we're a little closer to the last days. So I think that applies to us as well. It says God has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, God spoke to Moses by a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah by a still small voice. He spoke to Isaiah through a heavenly vision. He spoke to Hosea literally through a family crisis. He spoke to Amos through a basket of fruit. God has been speaking and he still is speaking. These men of God carried the message of God to the people of God. God spoke, the men of God carried the message of God to the people of God. Today, in the last days, God has spoken and is still speaking. And we we're told here very clearly, he has spoken through his son, 
Jesus. That's Jesus Christ. In these first four verses of Hebrews, I don't know if you picked up on it, but you learned a whole lot about Jesus. It had a lot to say. First of all, it told us that God is speaking through him. And then it told us that Jesus has been anointed heir of all things. That's heir, H-E-I-R. The worlds were made, created through Jesus. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God. Jesus is upholding the things by the word of his power. Jesus alone purged our sins. That's my sins and your sins. Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty, the Father. And he has a more excellent name than the angels. Wow, that's a lot of information. So next time someone or you consider, do I believe on Jesus Christ? You just got a good description of who he is, what he's done, what he's accomplished. Let's break them down. Look at them individually. Get a little bit more out of them. We could probably spend an entire Bible study on each one of them, but I think we would get lost in the details. In these last days, it says he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus, God, has spoken In other words, Jesus is teaching us, he's telling us about God. But the prophets of old, they would hear from the Lord and they would give a message from the Lord to God's people. Yes, he fills that role as well. But the interesting thing, when you look at Christ, it's not just a verbal message, he himself is the message. In other words, the word is the message, but his life, who he was, who he is, What he's he's done, that is the message that's speaking to us. He's the example. And he revealed things about God that no prophet revealed, that nobody could reveal. In other words, let me tell you just one thing. Through Jesus Christ, you know, if you study the life of Christ, the more you get to know Christ, you know what you're going to learn? You're going to learn more about God's personality. You all have friends, right? Some you like, maybe some you don't like. Some personalities you click with were like-minded, were there. Others, not so much. Through Christ, we get to know God's personality. How cool is that? God says, I want to know you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to talk to you about myself, but it's only through Jesus Christ. Maybe you've met people who have the wrong idea of God's personality. They see him as a judge just throwing lightning bolts from heaven. No worries, you know, just zap at everybody that doesn't do exactly what he wants. Or perhaps on the other side, you met somebody who goes, oh, God, God, I got all the grace I need. I can live however I want. Well, you don't understand the personality of God. God is long-suffering, but he's also just. And through Jesus Christ, we see that personality perfectly played out. One commentator said this. He said, the revelation from Jesus himself was unique because not only was it purely God's message, as was the case with every other inspired writer, but it was also God's personality through which the message came. The personality of Paul, Peter, John, and other biblical writers is clear in their writings. Yet in the revelation from Jesus, we see the personality of God. The next thing we read there about Jesus is that God appointed him heir of all things. An heir is a family member. It's someone who's in the lineage. Either they will in the the future inherit something or they have inherited something. But it's usually spelled out clearly in the will. This verse makes it clear that Jesus is the heir of God. And he has been appointed or assigned all things. You know what all things mean? All things. You know what all things, you know the word all, just so we're clear, it means all. Do you know know what's included? Let me ask you this way. Do you know who's included in all things? That's us. That's us. We are part of his inheritance. We are part, he's receiving us. 
If I got you for an inheritance, I might want to give you back. That's not his heart. That's not his personality. That's not what God says. After telling us that Jesus is the heir, the author tells us through whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds. Through Jesus also he made the worlds. And it seems like there, when we read that in our English language, it seems like God's saying, I made the worlds through Jesus. But the the Greek grammar, if you study a little bit deeper, it indicates that Jesus is not just an instrument or a passive tool, but he's more of a cooperating agent. Literally, it means Jesus made the worlds. He created those things. In other words, when back in Genesis, when God was saying, let us make man in our image, us is the Trinity. It's three in one. Uh, God, Jesus was the one speaking the worlds into existence. You go, well, it says God. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're three in one. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But listen to, as I read to you what, what Paul says about it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, for by him, that's Christ, by Jesus, all things, again, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or all things are held together. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The Apostle John put it this way. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Revelation tells us the Word is Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. And then John would go on to say in chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, that's Christ, that's God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of, don't forget the last part, grace and truth. So through Christ, we get a picture of God's personality. Did you notice it says he made the worlds? The Greek word for worlds indicates that he created the physical world, but it also goes beyond that. It's not just the physical. It says he created the time, the ages, time periods. In other words, our time period as we know it, tomorrow starts when the sun rises and sets. Today ends when the sun sets. It's based on the earth rotating on its axis and a rotating of the years based on the earth rotating around the sun. That was all created by Christ. He's the one that put it all together. If you step outside of our world as we know it, you don't have any more time. There's no more sunrise and sunset. It doesn't exist that way. It's it's, it's different. It might not be a 24-hour day or a 365 and a quarter day day year. It It might be something different. The way that we live is because Christ, because the Lord created it that way. If it's a creation of his, it's subject to him. Remember that. All right, look at the next verse there. Jesus is also the brightness of his glory. That's God's glory. And the express image of his person. The sun, or any light for that matter, any lamp, cannot burn without radiating light or without giving off light. Have you ever actually seen the sun? You go, well, yeah, I went outside, and this morning I looked outside, and I saw... No, you saw the light coming from the sun. Did you actually see the sun, the surface of the sun? Well, no, I've never really seen the surface. I've seen a picture of it, but you've never actually seen it. 
we see the rays of the sun. We see the radiation of light from the sun or the brightness of the sun. It's actually the light that is radiated by the sun that we're seeing. That light is what's warming us. It's what we like to see. It's what makes us feel good. The author is saying Jesus is to God what the sun rays, S-U-N rays, are to the sun. Do you get the concept there? Do you get the idea? He is, you know, it's, the moon reflects something. But the sun rays, Jesus is saying, I, I, am, I am showing you, you can learn a lot about the sun by, by, by the, the effects of the rays that the sun gives off. You can learn a lot about God by understanding and learning about Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of concept. And although we can't see the sun, we can learn certain characteristics about the sun through its wet rays. How many of us like to sit in the warm sun, especially if it's been cold outside? How many of us know that realize if, if we get too many days of darkness, it's actually a little depressing, isn't it? Uh, some, somebody sent me an article recently about their, they've discovered some new cells in your eyes that are somehow can collect the sunlight, which affects your mood. That's going to destroy evolution altogether by itself. Think about that. If I have to have the sun to make my mood change, and you hear about people that are, live up north where we are, where, there's, where there can be many days of darkness, and it's like you get, kind of get depressed sometimes, and the sun comes out like, oh, the sun came out, because it's the effects of the sun. Do you know your spiritual life is the same way? The effects of the sun, the S-O-N, <coughs> will affect you. If you've been too many days without Jesus, if you've gotten too far away from him, if you've put too many things in front of him, you're going to feel perhaps the same way. A little depressed, a little down. I need to get filled back up. I need, I need to spend some time with the Son. I need to spend some time with Jesus Christ. It also tells us that Jesus is the express image of God's person. The word for express image there, it literally carries the idea of being the exact imprint a copy, the exact copy. He's the exact representation of God. Which is why that while Jesus was on earth, he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no difference. He's an exact image. He's that exact copy. That's why he could say that. That's why he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When the world saw Christ, he's, in John it said, they beheld the glory of the Father. You're seeing the picture of God in Jesus Christ. And there in verse 3, it tells us that Jesus is upholding all things, all things, again, important, all things by the word of his power. Now, the word upholding, maybe I think differently than some people. To me, I think of somebody holding something up, like, you know, the, you know, the picture of the strong man, the guy holding the world, and he's got the earth, he's carrying it, and he's straining, and it's heavy, but he's got it in his hands. That's not really what this Greek word means here. He's not, it doesn't mean struggling as though you're carrying a burden. Literally what it means is he's holding and care. It's, it's, it's like the idea of you holding something and carrying it from one place to another. In other words, you pick it up, you, you carry it in your hands, and you take it someplace else. And the idea here is that Jesus is guiding, he's directing, he's literally moving the world and all that's in it. It's under his control as he transports it from one place to another. You go, well, are we really being transported? I don't know, the scientists tell us the solar system is spinning and we're moving throughout space, heading somewhere, I don't know. We know that we're winding down, that we can't live forever. We know that our, our natural resources won't last forever. But the picture here is that Jesus is the God of creation who guides this universe to its divine ordained destiny. In other words, he's created it, he's set it in motion, he's holding it, he's moving it from the time it began until the time it ends. Hopefully that makes you go, wow. You go, Rob, that kind of stuff short circuits my brain. Good. It should. When you consider who Christ is, it should short circuit us a little bit. We shouldn't be able to go, oh yeah, I fully understand that. 
That makes perfect sense to me. I got that. Yeah, I could write a paper on that tomorrow. No, we should go, that hurts my mind sometimes. That's good because our God is not understandable. He's the creator. We're the creation. We only understand what he's revealed to us about himself. Our understanding is limited. We need to keep that in mind. In verse 3, it tells us Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. All things by the word of his power. Is that not powerful? His word is so powerful. It's literally upholding all things. Consider with me when Christ was walking on the earth, when he wanted to heal the sick, he spoke. When he wanted to cast out a demon, he spoke. When he wanted to calm the storm, he spoke. He's the creator. He's, you, know, you, can, you can try to calm a storm as much as you want. And unless he does it, it's not happening. You can try to heal the sick as much as you want. But unless he does it, it's not happening. But when he wants to do it, he speaks. He spoke. Whether he did it in different ways, but his, his word has to be obeyed. It wasn't like when he was out on the Sea of Galilee, the storm all of a sudden getting, got rough and built up. He had to work up. He didn't ask the disciples, hey, help me out here. All right, I need you guys to dance around on the boat, and we're going we're gonna to do this together. He said, shh, calm, perfectly calm. He spoke. His word is powerful. Next, the author tells us that after Jesus had, notice he says, by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice what he did. He purged our sins. Why would he do that? Why would he purge your sins? I mean, I understand why he purges my sins. Why would he purge your sins? No, I'm just kidding. I understand why he would purge both of our sins. Because he loves us. He loves us. He created us. We're his. He bought us. He purged us. And the word for purged, it means cleanse. It means to clean, to cleanse something. He cleansed us from all our impurities. And when something is completely cleansed, something is completely purged, all the impurities, they're all gone. They're not there anymore. Now, let me see if I can explain this to you. In my house, a lot of times we'll have snacks late at night. And usually a snack includes a glass of milk. And when you get done with the glass of milk, there's always a little bit of milk left in the bottom. So you, you know that if you leave it on the counter, it's going to get dried up and hard before morning. But if you put a little bit of water in the glass, then it'll be okay. And whoever has the dishes that morning will be able to put it away without creating a problem. But when you put that little bit of water in the glass, you haven't cleansed the glass. You've just kind of added to it. You, you haven't, the, the impurity of the milk is still there. It's still there. But if you then take that glass with a little bit of milk on the bottom and you fill it full of water and you wash it out and you get a sponge and you clean it and you clean the outside of the glass, you clean the inside of the glass, then you wash it with fresh water and then you put it there on the counter in the sink. It's been cleansed. It's been purged. There's no more evidence. There's no more hint of that impurity of the, whatever little bit of milk was left over. Do you realize that's your life if you're in Jesus Christ? There's no, that you go, well, that's not what I'm experiencing. I'm not concerned with what you're experiencing. I want to teach you what God's word says. You may still choose to sin after coming to Jesus Christ. You don't have to do that. You can say no. You have the power over your body to say no. What this is teaching us is that Christ says your sins have been cleansed. They have been, you've been purified. He didn't leave us a glass on the counter with a little bit of sin left in the bottom that he'll take care of later. It's finished, he said. It is finished. We are washed clean. You say, well, tomorrow I'm going to sin. That's right, you are. But I want you to know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's not held against you. 
It's not held against you. You're forgiven. Well, what if I sin next week? You're going to sin before the days are. Some of you are sinning right now in what you're thinking about me, perhaps. I don't know. But whatever happens, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you go, I'm cleansed from that. I'm purified from that. I'm not a dirty glass. I am a clean, cleansed individual. That's what the blood of Christ does. So often salvation has become just a word. Are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved. Do you really know what that means? you really know what that means? It means I am cleansed. I am purified from my sins. He's cleansed me. It's what he did to our sins. He purged them, all of them. Which means no matter what you've done in the past, you go, well, I don't know that he could forget my sins. Mine have been bad. No, he's purged it. What you're going to do in the future, it's purged. Now, let me just remind you, that doesn't mean there's not consequences for your sins. Because if you've sinned, there will be consequences, and it very well may hurt other people. But he has purged them. Notice how he did it. He did it with who helped him? Nobody. It says by himself. Jesus did this by himself. It's an interesting phrase. It means two things. First, he purged our sins with his own body. He came to earth. He stepped out of heaven. He lived on this earth as, like, as a human being like we would under the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life. He did something that we couldn't do. He became the perfect sacrifice on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And when he gave his life, he said it is finished and he reconciled mankind to God. But he also did it alone without any help. Nobody helped him. It wasn't the disciples there cheering him on. As a matter of fact, with the exception of John, they all took off. There was no one cheering him on like that. He did it all by himself. And he did it because he loved us. Because he cared for us. Because he wanted a relationship with us. And he knew that our sin was what was separating us from him. You see, in Judaism, the cleansing of sin was quite a process. We don't realize what a process it was. You would have to go to the temple Either bring an animal with you for a sacrifice and bring your sacrifices. And if you didn't have one, you could buy one there. And you would buy one, then you would have to have that animal inspected to make sure it was without blemish. That animal would be taken and and put on the altar and killed. And the blood would be sprinkled on the altar. It was the whole process the priest had to do that you could be cleansed of your sins. You go, wow, that's a lot of work. Jesus says, I was that lamb that went to the cross for you. I took care of that for you. And even on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. Jesus said, I'm that sacrifice for all of mankind from now on. I am the one who took care of that. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, gave his entire life in order to purify you and I, you and me, of our sins. Both past, present, and future. And he did it alone because he loved you so much. After accomplishing this, I like this part. I like all of it, but I like the way it's written. Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. I like that, majesty on high. So after he dealt with sin, Jesus ascends to the throne. The right hand was traditionally known as the place of honor. And in verse 4, the author is going to begin to compare Jesus to the angels. Let me start in verse 3 just to keep it in context. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Angels, they're not as important in our culture as they were in their culture. In the Jewish religion, they were very important, primarily because in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, it was given, or the angels were present for that. 
So they've always held the angels in high regard. There was an angel that stood on either side of the Ark of the Covenant. It was almost to the point where they became, in some sense, worshiping the angels. And the author here wants us to know that Jesus Christ is higher than the angels. And if you keep it in context and perspective, let me read it to you. This is what he's saying. Because Jesus is speaking to us today, because he is the heir of all things, because he took part in creating the worlds as we know them, because he is the brightness of God's glory, because he is the express image of God's person, because Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power, because he has purged our sins alone and sat down at the right hand of Almighty, he's much better than the angels. They haven't done all those things, which would make sense. His way of salvation is better than the law. In the next 10 verses, we'll go through them rather quickly. The author will continue to demonstrate the superiority of Christ to the angels. Let's watch as he uses the Old Testament to prove the supremacy of Christ. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In verse 4, we read that Jesus had a more excellent name than the angels. That name is son. Son. Father, son. It's a more excellent name. While the angels as a group are or have been called the sons of God, nowhere would they ever be ascribed the title son. My son, they are created beings like we are created beings. This title of son belongs uniquely to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son to God, or he is God's son. In verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. In the Bible, the term firstborn does not always mean born first, although typically that's what it meant. In many cases, for instance, God made Solomon the firstborn, even though he was, if I remember correctly, it was the tenth born in the lineage of David. But he, was the, he held the position of honor or the position of rank. The firstborn receives the inheritance and the special blessing. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is honored and blessed over all creation. Now, don't, don't see people get mixed up. They say, well, he was born, therefore he wasn't, he didn't exist. No, the scripture has been clear. He existed. He was present at creation. He holds the greatest position of honor over everything that has been created. That's what it, scripture means there. Did you catch the fact that the angels worship him? They're, he, they're worshiping him? When Jesus came into the world, the angels worshiped him. When they appeared to the shepherds, they sang, and they, or they didn't sing, they, they declared, they worshipped him. God commanded them to do so, which proves that Jesus Christ is God, for the angels would not worship anybody but God. Or if they did, they would be like Satan cast out of heaven. If you, run a, if you study the scriptures, you'll find that every time an angel appears and man bows down to them, the angel says, get up, don't worship me, I'm just a messenger. I'm just, an, I'm just an angel. No, don't, don't worship me. Worship God. Jesus holds a higher position. He's the firstborn in creation. He's worshiped by the angels. But I want you to see as we look at verse 7, the angels are also ministering to him. They're serving him. They're like his servants. Verse 7, and the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. The Hebrew and the Greek word for spirit 
is also translated as wind. Angels are created spirits. They have no bodies, although they can assume human bodies when they're ministering on earth. We see that in the scriptures. Angels sometimes serve our Lord when he was on earth, and they are serving him and even ministering to us now under his direction. You see, people take an area like this, they get all wrapped up in, oh, I got to learn more about angels. No, learn more about Christ. The purpose of this passage is to show you who Christ is, his supremacy to the angels. Don't get stuck looking at at second, third, fourth, or fifth best. Focus on who Christ is. But notice what the Father says to Jesus in verse verse 8. If you've been kind of wondering, wait a minute, you said he's the Son of God. I thought we believed in the Trinity. We do. How does it all work together? You're going to see it unfold here. Look at verse 8. But to the Son, this is God speaking to the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. Did you notice that the Father is speaking to the Son and the Father calls the Son, O God? Why would God call anybody God unless he was God? You go, wait a minute, that's like the same person. He's talking to himself. No, he's talking to the Son. No, but, but they're, they're one. Yeah, I get it. That's the whole Trinity thing. Good luck trying to explain it. It's hard to understand. Our minds can't comprehend it. But what we see here is God calling Christ the Messiah God. That's pretty impressive. So when people say, no, no, God, no, you don't understand. Jesus is just the son of God. Well, explain to me what, who God's talking to there. He's not, he's not having a conversation with himself. He's making it very clear. He's using the Old Testament to do it. When the first person of the Trinity spoke to the second person of the Trinity, he called him God. It's that simple. This is unique, and it's powerful evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. So if you run across a Mormon friend or a Jehovah Witness friend that says Jesus is not really God, good place to take him and say, well, who is he speaking of there? And see what their answer is. Look at verse 9. It gets better. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So when it says God, your God, it's God speaking, God the Father, and his position is authority over the Son, but he still calls him God. When he says anointed you, it's referring to the Son. Now, I'm going to show you something even cooler there. We have God calling Jesus God, right? We've got that part. But I want you to notice that he's anointed. He's been anointed with the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit, okay? Anointed with the oil of gladness, it says. Oil of gladness. Oil in the Bible is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. Anointed them with oil. It's the the picture of the Holy Spirit. So we have God calling Jesus God and anointing him with the Holy Spirit. Perfect verse for the Trinity, Hopefully you see it there. But the author continues there to write about Jesus. He says this. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But... To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? None is the answer. 
Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Wow. Jesus is not only called God, but in verse 10, he's called Lord. But look at the description that the author of Hebrews wants you to understand about Jesus. He was in the beginning. He laid the foundations of the earth, created the heavens. He wants you to know that Jesus will never perish. He has authority over all creation. Even the angels are under his authority. And it seems some of those angels will perish, perhaps. Maybe he's speaking of the angels' restricted freedom, those the fallen angels that will be one day be cast into the lake of fire. But he said, you will fold them up and they will be changed. Jesus is eternal and will never change. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. What are the angels doing? They're ministering, servants, ministering to him, ministering to us. You always wonder, I wonder what, the, I wonder what my guardian angel's doing today, right? I wonder what, my, boy, you're really keeping your guardian angel busy. We've heard all those things. That, and perhaps they are, they're ministering to us. But I want to take you to a place in scripture. They're also praising God. They're before the throne room of God. After John is taken up into heaven in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, it says this. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night. But they're saying something. Here's what they're saying. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The writer of Hebrews says it. John in Revelation says it. Paul tells us this. And it goes on there in Revelation verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, I believe that's the 12 apostles and the 12 uh, leaders of Israel, the, 12, the head of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Do you see the common theme? It's in Colossians, it's in John, it's in 2 Peter, it's in Revelation. The common theme is spreading throughout the Bible. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7 verse 11 it says, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And it says they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God. Why would you elevate an angel to a position equal with Jesus Christ? Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the one receiving the worship. Yet in their day, there was this controversy about the power. How we, Angels are being so important. Perhaps you've met somebody in our world that, that spends too much time focusing and thinking about angels. Get your mind off of the angels. Get it onto Jesus Christ. For he is the one that holds the power. So do you think in the first chapter the author made his point that Jesus is greater than the angels? I do. I think he made it very clearly 